Well, for the next three weeks, we're going to study the life of one of Israel's patriarchs, a man by the name of Jacob, who's a grandson of Abraham. And if we're really going to appreciate his story, we have to set it in a little broader context, in the context of a covenant promise that was made two generations before him. It starts with God calling a man to leave his country, to leave his family, uh, to leave his home, and to journey to a land that God promised to give him and his descendants. And so we'll throw up a map here, and you can see where Abraham moves from Ur of the Chaldeans up north, northwest, to the city of Haran. He stays in Haran until his father dies, and then he completes the trip down into Canaan. And God makes a covenant with this man, Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham. And uh, the covenant is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 12. It's maybe familiar to many of you, where we read, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God later reiterates the promise of an heir. And Genesis 15 records this profound and significant far-reaching statement. And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham's life was not an easy one, uh, nor one free from drama. In fact, it was a messy life. Sarah, his wife, you remember, was barren. And impatient with God's promise, she gives her handmaiden to Abram as a wife and says, maybe she'll produce an heir for me. And she did. A son was born and was named Ishmael. But this was not to be the son of the promise that God had promised. Thirteen years later, imagine that, thirteen years later, God revisits Abraham. And he renews his promise of a son through his wife, Sarah. And God opens her womb, and she conceives, and she bears another son who's named Isaac. Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab peoples. Isaac becomes the father of the Hebrews. Messy. Messy. In fact, it's a mess that continues down to the present day. There's a refrain that will run through the life of Abraham, recurring over and over again all the way through his family. It'll show up in our study of Jacob, and that's this. Life is messy. God is faithful. Isaac, his son, marries a woman from Abraham's relatives. And she, like Sarah, was barren. And Isaac prays to God, and God opens her womb, and she conceives twins. And this begins Act 1 in Jacob's life. And apparently within her, and the idea in the Hebrew languages, it's like bumper cars inside of her. It's a, it's, a, it's a battleground of these twins. And so she goes, and in, she inquires of the Lord. 
And God gives her a prophecy concerning these two boys that are unborn. So if you would turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 25, or if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, the very first book in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 25, and you're just going to want to keep it open there the rest of our morning because we'll just move through a few chapters here. Genesis chapter 25. After Rebekah goes, and we're not exactly sure, scholars are not sure who she goes to, but gets this prophecy. But what we read, starting in verse 21, is Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The Lord granted her prayer. Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now that's kind of crazy because that's not the culture. But this is the prophecy of God. The text doesn't say. But I find it hard to imagine that Rebecca does not share this with her husband Isaac. You know, she's, she's looking out here for, for the family. Um, and, and another reason I think she would do it is because the implications are enormous as things begin to unfold and the story develops. The Genesis account continues with the, with the story of their births. Verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. They tended to pick names that sort of were descriptive. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. You might have a footnote in your Bible that I do, that Jacob means he takes by the heel or he cheats or heel grasper. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's trying to pull him back in. That's what I think is happening there. Um, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, in spite of the prophecy, or maybe because of it, mom and dad choose their favorites. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. The dysfunction of parental favoritism produces the first of two incidents that will color the brother's relationship for life. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Well, what is this thing, this birthright that he basically gives away? Well, the birthright was the oldest son's portion of the family's material estate that always went to that firstborn person who usually got a double portion of the inheritance. So according to custom, 
What Isaac would have done was to divide his estate into thirds, and Esau, the firstborn, would have gotten two-thirds, younger a third. The other thing that was significant is that the firstborn, by birthright, also became the head of the family when dad died. So this is a big deal. Jacob is is selling it very generously to his brother for his birthright. The text doesn't give us any further information. I don't know. It's hard for me to believe that Esau is famished to the point of death, but, you know, who knows? Maybe you've been that hungry. Obviously, he regrets later what he did. And when it sunk in that he'd given to his younger brother what what was rightfully his, it must have really stung it must have settled in his craw and becomes the source of jealousy and bitterness. Verse 34 says that Esau came to despise his birthright, what he had given away for a bowl of soup. Well, the story continues to unfold, and it leads to the second significant event. Now, Isaac remembers 60 years old, according to the text, when Rebekah gave birth to the twin boys. When we come to chapter 27, he decides that he wants to determine the future of God's plan. There are several things that we'll note up front as we move into the chapter. First, there's urgency. He believes that his life is near the end, so he feels that now is the right time to give the blessing to Esau, his oldest. Isaac is 137 years old at this time. He's almost blind. But in reality, we know he will live another 43 years until he's 180. There's not only uh, urgency, there's also secrecy. And what should have been done and declared in public, Isaac seeks to do in a tent, away from any scrutiny. Why? I think he knows that this isn't what God had declared in his prophecy to Rebekah, that the older would serve the younger that the younger was the chosen one to be the covenant promised recipient. And then there's conspiracy. So in chapter 27, Isaac tells his son to go out and kill wild game, come back and prepare his favorite meal. And then he would give the blessing to Esau. But what Isaac hadn't planned on was a counter-conspiracy. The text says that Rebekah was listening She overheard her her husband plot with Esau for the blessing. The Hebrew usage implies here that eavesdropping was a habit. It was a pattern of Rebekah. But she remembers God's promise about Jacob, and so she calls Jacob her favorite son, and she lays out this plan of deceit, of deception. You know, we have to ask in our minds, does it seem logical or likely that this was just a spur-of-the-moment strategy? Or maybe is this a well-thought-out and planned beforehand, waiting for just the right moment? I'll let you be the judge. (coughs) What's behind the deception? I think they feel they have to help God out. And they would justify their deceitful ways with the rationalization that the end justifies the means. This is nothing more than situational ethics, Hebrew style. By the way, these are not just impressionable teenagers who are pawns of their parents. Uh, Jacob and Esau are probably 77 years old at this point. 
It's interesting that Jacob raises an objection to his mother that essentially betrayed his fear of what would happen if they failed to deceive old dad. It was failure that he feared, not honesty. You know, he's really not concerned about the right thing to do. What he is is concerned about is getting caught in the lie. So here, here is Isaac trying to resist the revealed sovereign will of God, while Rebekah is trying to manipulate the revealed sovereign will of God. Isaac was unwilling to follow God's direction as to the covenant, and Rebekah was unwilling to trust God to bring the blessing to Jacob in his way and in his time. Oh, it's messy, isn't it? Life is messy. Rebekah and Jacob deceive Isaac into thinking and believing that Jacob was Esau. And Isaac gives the blessing to the younger just as who promised? God did. Esau is steamed. Turn over to chapter 27. Look at verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Fearing for her son's life, Rebekah convinces Isaac that Jacob should be sent away. After all, she reasoned, he should go find a wife among the relatives back in Haran. Verse 42, the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to her, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be reft of you both in one day? Well, Isaac at this time seems to come around to God's plan. And so knowing now that Jacob is going to get sent away, he calls him to give him the covenant blessing. You look in chapter 28, verse 3. He says to Jacob the younger, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May, the ble- may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. Life is messy. The fallout of Rebekah and Jacob's deception is far-reaching. Esau is set on vengeance. Isaac laments the deception and his part in violating the covenant order of inheritance. But he cannot and will not revoke the blessing that he gave to the younger son, Jacob. And so Jacob flees from there to save his skin from his brother. Families divided. Relationships severed. Tragically for Rebekah, most likely she never sees her beloved son, Jacob, again. And what she envisions is just going to be a few days or weeks perhaps apart turns into 20 years. She'll probably die before he eventually comes home. 
I wonder if her own prophecy recorded in verse 13 comes true when she said to her son, let your curse be on me, my son, if they didn't find themselves successful. Life is messy. From a human perspective, would it not be fair at this point to think that God's divine plan has been interrupted, perhaps even circumvented by the heart and actions of a deceiver? Do you really wonder where this thing is going to end up? And so Jacob flees and he begins his journey to Haran. So now he's going from where he was down in Canaan. Now he's going northeast back up to his relative's place. He flees, but something happens on the way. Look at chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. The original, my pillow. (laughs) And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he'd put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This appears, from what we know in the text, to be the first real personal interaction that Jacob has with God. I have to assume that his parents taught him about God, but it's here now that it becomes personal. That's certainly the case today, isn't it? Parents need to teach their children about God, but there is a time where we, as we grow up, have to have our own encounter with God. It's no longer our parents' God, it becomes our God, and that's, I think, what's happening to Jacob. Think about this encounter and the circumstances surrounding it. Jacob sets out on this journey, probably 600 miles in length, and he travels about 50 miles, maybe in two days, and then he camps in the area of Bethel. This is the place where his grandfather Abraham had also camped, where God had met him And in response, Abraham had set up a pillar, a tower, a worship place, and worshiped God. But poor Jacob, he's all alone. He doesn't have the security of his parents anymore, of his father's position. 
his wealth. There's no servants. There's no family. Uh, I imagine there were all sorts of things that were going through his mind. Uncertainty, doubt, fear, anxiety, maybe, maybe regret of what had happened back at home, sorrow. Have you ever been there? Maybe you can identify with this sense of aloneness that Jacob feels. But it's at this time of loneliness and uncertainty that God comes to Jacob. And God speaks words of encouragement and assurance to him. And he restates the covenant that he gave to Abraham and that he gave to Isaac. And he indicates that Jacob now is in this line that will ultimately culminate in the coming of Messiah. This must have been a shocker to Jacob. I mean, when he thinks about the promise that God has made, it appears that he has nothing of which the covenant promised. He has no land. He has no possessions. He has no family. He has nothing. But here's the point. Life is messy. God is faithful. I'd like to suggest that there's a very important concept that we have to consider about Jacob's life that also applies to you and to me in the 21st century. And it's this, put it together in a diagram. Over our lives is the cover of God's providence. This was a theme, if you were here, when we did our study of the book of Esther in the Old Testament. Uh, Karen Jobes, in her commentary, writes, Throughout history, God fulfills his covenant promises through his providence. When we speak of God's providence, we mean that God, in some invisible and inscrutable way, governs all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and the ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. God made a covenant promise to Abraham. His divine will, purpose, and plan would not be derailed, would not be thwarted, and what it happens here is that God uses messy lives. He used these messy lives of Abraham and Isaac and even, as we'll see, Jacob to continue his redemptive plan that culminates not just with Messiah, that's the centerpiece of the gospel, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, but it's a plan that will go all the way to eternity for those that love him. Now look back at the, at the diagram again. The foundation under our messy lives when we're in a relationship with God is faithfulness. Life is messy. God is faithful. And we trust that God, by his providence, is fulfilling his plan for our lives, using even our failings, using even our messes to bring about his divine purposes for his glory and our ultimate good. The scriptures declare over and over again that God is faithful. Look at this from Lamentations, maybe one of the most familiar ones. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. One of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozier, writes, Upon God's faithfulness rests our whole hope of future blessedness. Only as he is faithful will his covenants and his promises be honored. Only as we have complete assurance that he is faithful, may we live in peace and look forward with assurance to the life to come. So let me, let me, let me just step out for a moment and draw some applications for us today. 
uh, built on Jacob's experience. Someone has said, life can only be lived forwards, but only understood backwards. Years later, I wonder, could Jacob ever have imagined that from these experiences of failure and dysfunction, that God would keep his covenant promise and work through him and through his descendants to accomplish his divine purpose. The amazing thing to me is that God did not write Jacob off. He had every reason to change his mind, to redirect the covenant promise somewhere else, but he was bound by his faithfulness, by the promise of his word. You realize you and I aren't much different. Every one of us is a product of dysfunction. That's both theologically and personally true. We are all fallen people living in a fallen world, and we suffer the consequences of the original sin in the Garden of Eden. But we also know the experience of sin in a very personal way, choosing our own disobedience, our own independence, our own willful actions and choices that we make. And by both accounts, we should be disqualified from receiving anything from God. But God bestows his grace upon us just like he did Jacob. Nothing in him nor us merits God's favor. But he chooses to give us grace. And as he does so, his promises become ours. And those promises are bound by his faithfulness. Without that assurance, we stand on shaky ground. Let me ask you, what is messy in your life? Messy in your family? What do you, what do you need to do to make changes? God's grace is abundant, it's sure, but maybe there are things that you and I need to do on our part to address those things. Got a couple of phrases for you to walk away with this morning. You know, as our message planning team meets, and we, we're kicking around different ideas. So here's a couple of things. Chris says, address your mess. It's, yeah, it's deep. <laughs> Sherry says, weed your garden. Should we vote? <laughs> now here's the encouraging news. God stepped into our mess. The promise of a savior in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve's sin was eventually fulfilled in the fullness of time in the person of Jesus, Messiah, the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan. So think about Jacob, who's just here, almost in the early part of this plan. Starts back with the promise of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. Makes its way all the way up through Messiah, his life, his death, his resurrection. And then it extends out to the end of time. Amazing. And in bearing our sin, he addresses our mess in a way that we cannot. And that we're incapable of doing. God told Jacob that he wasn't through with him that he would yet be a blessing to the whole world. James Boyce, in his commentary in the book of Genesis, writes this. This is a great promise, because it demonstrates that however badly we may have acted in the past, and however ashamed we may be by it, God is always able to begin with us where we are and use us as a channel for blessing in the lives of others. Are you ashamed of the past? Are you devastated by something you've said or done? If you are, God is able to start over with you right where you are. 
Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing causes him to give up. Simply confess the sin that troubles you, allow God to forgive and cleanse it, and then go on in whatever direction he sets before you. He is far more ready to give blessing than you are to receive it. Do you see anything of Jacob in your life story this morning? Can you see God's grace and his providence and his faithfulness at work in you? Now, I have to tell you that it would be nice if everything for Jacob was hunky-dory from this time on. Unfortunately, it's not. In fact, his life is about to take an unexpected turn that we'll look at next week. The deceiver is about to receive payback. And that's where we'll camp next week. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that your plan will forever stand. And within that plan, your providence guides and directs the normal course of affairs of things in our lives. But you bring about your ultimate purposes in us so that we can agree with the Apostle Paul when he writes, for God causes all things to work together for our good, to those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. And the reason is because you're working in us and shaping us to be like your son. And so might we be quick to listen, quick to obey. Uh, might we really see your hand of grace in everything in our lives. God, would you maybe speak to somebody today that's like Jacob that maybe thinks he's ready to throw the towel in, that you're done with him. And yet I thank you that for each of us, you have something wonderful in mind in us and ways in which you'll work through us. So thank you for Jacob. Thank you for his story and what we can learn from him. In Jesus' name, amen.